listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you please stand for the reading of the scripture from Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Rabbinate, you read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I'll tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the men stretched, stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. I've been wearing these things since I was, I think, around seven years old. It might have been, it might have been earlier than that. My memory back then is a little unfocused. But uh, thank you. Uh, not this pair, obviously, but a pair of glasses I've been wearing. There are some really dorky photos of me that I hope never surfaced from when I was like eight or nine and the the massive glasses that I wore back then. But I have been wearing glasses for 30-something years now and have been at constant war with these things. Because the point of glasses is for you to not know or not realize or not have to think about the fact that you're wearing them, right? They, They get smudged up all the time and there's the when you're driving at night and there's like the flares and all that stuff, I'm constantly taking them off and doing the only thing a tie is good for, cleaning them to get rid of the smudges, which would be great, except it can't get rid of little rock divots. And I've got one right in the middle of the left lens, right there, right in, like right in sight. And so it's like, it doesn't matter what I look at, there's just this tiny little smudge right here that I cannot get rid of, which means I'm spending all this time and energy focusing on my glasses instead of what my glasses are bringing into focus. The point of glasses, of course, is to see through them at something else or towards something else. The point of glasses is not to make themselves known or be a distraction, but they're there to serve as a way of seeing and understanding the world around you. 
Now, I bring that up because in the two stories that Pastor Tom just read for us, these Sabbath controversies that Jesus finds himself embroiled in, he's, he's in this conflict with the Pharisees going toe-to-toe to them, toe-to-toe with them about the Sabbath because they are kind of, I guess you could say their glasses are so covered over with smudges and dings and whatever that they've gotten to the point where they believe the glasses are the point instead of seeing through them to what the glasses are supposed to bring in to focus. In these stories, you may have noticed, it's like Jesus and the Pharisees are talking past each other. Because for them, all of the regulations around the Sabbath have become like the smudges on a pair of glasses to the point where that's all that they can see. See, the Sabbath, just like every other discipleship practice with which we engage, is designed not for us to focus solely on it, but for us to see through it to something greater. So what is the Sabbath supposed to reveal? If, if the Sabbath is like a pair of glasses that bring the world into focus, then what are we supposed to see, and how did the Pharisees get it so wrong? Well, that's what we're here this morning to find out. So if you haven't turned to Matthew chapter 12 yet, uh, jump in. If you grab the Bible, it's under the seat in front of you. It's on page 970. We're going to walk our way through these two stories, these back-to-back Sabbath controversies, uh, to see what Jesus is trying to say about the Sabbath itself, what it is, who it's for, what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, but most importantly, who it is who has the authority to answer all of those questions in the first place. So let's jump into Matthew chapter 12. We're just going to pick it up right at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. This kind of has the picture of a casual mid-morning walk. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to synagogue or something like that. It's a short walk. Obviously, there's a lot of rules about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, and one of them is how far you can travel at any given time, roughly no more than about half a mile. So this isn't like they're going from one city to another or anything like that. This is a short walk uh, on the way to synagogue, on the way to a friend's house, something along those lines. And they stop, well, they don't stop, but on the way, they begin to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, the fact that this is happening on the Sabbath and that this story immediately follows what we investigated last week is significant Jesus, you may, have remember, you may remember from last week, he's just given us these famous verses, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then immediately Matthew gives us two stories that take place on the day of rest. That's what Shabbat or Sabbath means is rest. Jesus has said, I'm the one who can give you the rest your souls are longing for. Now, let's talk a little bit about what that rest doesn't look like. And we get into these two Sabbath controversies. Now, understanding that this is the Sabbath, of course, is significant to what exactly is being argued about over here uh, in these stories. The, The Sabbath is that day of rest that's set apart for the Jewish people and anyone living in Israel. It's that day that's set aside to enjoy worship of God, time with one another, you know, all without the the burden of labor or work kind of hanging over you throughout the day. See, everyone gets the day off. 
uh, and this is significant, everyone gets the day off, not just the rich who can afford it or the people who can afford to pay others to do their work for them. Everyone gets the day off, and this was set down in law. Men, women, children, even servants, slaves, animals are given the day off. Because the Sabbath is when the people are commanded to enjoy good food, spend time with each other, get some extra sleep, and worship. It's a gift that was given to the people of Israel. Now, we're so far removed from that cultural context that, of course, it's easy for us to kind of focus in on all of the, the laws that went around it, that kind of went into making the Sabbath happen and the, the, the rituals that accompany it, it's, it's easy to write that off, but it's important for us to recognize that the Sabbath was not about just adhering to a set of sort of ceremonial observances. Right? There's a whole lot more to it than that. The Sabbath, like a pair of glasses, was a practice through which the people of Israel were supposed to look and see the world come into focus. Because the Sabbath is about the story of God's creation, about how God created the world and then as a gift on the last day gave to his people rest and a regular, a regular ritual, a rhythm of working and resting. It was a, a weekly holiday uh, that served as a sign, too, of Israel's special relationship with God. They were the only people that were given this commandment to rest, to take time off and rely on God instead of their own work. And, and it was a gift that was given to the people of Israel to remind them of the promise of life to come, that one day there would be this full and forever rest. So it's a good gift and all of the ceremony and the ritual and the preparation that goes into celebrating the Sabbath all had a purpose. It was an important part of the whole package. All of the rituals of preparation, they weren't meaningless. They were designed to, you know, take some work to cost you something because you know something you you know what something is worth if you pay nothing for it, right? It's worth nothing. Sabbath took some work to prepare for because that made it valuable. That was part of recognizing its value was you actually had to work to get ready for it. Just like you have to, you know, when you pay for something, you value it a little bit more. And all of the regulations that were around it, you know, that dictated what you could and couldn't do, those weren't just arbitrary regulations. They were part of what made the day different, that gave it that kind of visceral feel of a different kind of time than the rest of the week, when you went into a community in which everything was at rest. It just felt different. So for the religious leaders who were responsible for the, the heart of worship of the people of Israel, maintaining the Sabbath and doing it well was really important. You know, one author writes about the Sabbath. She says that, she puts it pretty bluntly, the rules did not exist to torture the faithful. The Sabbath rules weren't there to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will. Like it takes a lot of work to stop working. And it's an act that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction, she says, by broader community support. It takes a community to keep the Sabbath well. 
which is why the Pharisees are really interested in keeping it well. And it's why, at the heart of these controversies, it's not actually about keeping the Sabbath well, at least not keeping it technically well, about following all the right regulations and stipulations for the Sabbath. It's about who gets to decide what the right way to keep Sabbath is, what it means to keep Sabbath well. It's more than just what the Sabbath is or who the Sabbath is for or what you can and can't do. It's about the one who is greater than the Sabbath. So let's jump back into the story, back to verse 1. It starts out, at that time, shortly after the previous statements, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, this is totally normal behavior, by the way. Uh, to be walking through someone else's fields is quite normal. In rural, small towns, there's not a lot of roads. Any roads that are there kind of go right through grain fields. A lot less you know, fencing and ditches and all that than we're used to today. And to walk through someone else's field and pluck some of the grain and eat it is also totally fine. There's Old Testament law that, that gives this right to anyone who's going on a walk. You can grab a couple of heads of grain and roll them between your hands and go ahead and chow down on them if that's what sounds good to you. You can't take like harvesting equipment in and just take the whole field down and say, I was just grabbing it as I went by. Like that's specifically not allowed. But you can, if when you're on a walk and you're a little bit hungry, grab some food to eat along the way and enjoy it. So what they're doing, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing, except it's on the Sabbath. And depending on who you asked, handpicking a few grains of wheat as you walk is considered reaping or harvesting, one of specifically 39 types of work that are disallowed on the Sabbath at least according to the Pharisees. Not every religious authority agreed on the list, but these guys for sure were sticklers about it. And just being hungry doesn't justify it. Um, If you're like in mortal danger of starving to death, then you can break these regulations to eat or, you know, to harvest or something like that. But just being a little bit hungry as you walk doesn't really really cover it. Nobody here is in danger of, of starvation. So the Pharisees, the ones who are responsible for maintaining the heart of the people oriented towards God through Sabbath, see this guy who's breaking their regulations and choose to confront him about it. So verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus, in his response, he doesn't dispute their point. He doesn't say, no, 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 you guys misunderstand. It's actually fine. I'm more with these guys over here who say it's okay. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't dispute their point, but he also doesn't really concede their point either, I don't think. Instead, he he shifts the conversation into an entirely different register. He says, let's let's get above this conversation specifically about what you can and can't do, and starts a string of arguments— all designed to show that of everybody present, he's really the only one who has the right to say what the Sabbath is for and what it's not for, what you can and can't do. In other words, he's, he's offering to say, hey, I can clean your glasses if you'd rather see through the Sabbath at what it points to, you know, if you'll let me. So yeah, I'm here to help with that, if they'll let him. So verse 3, 
Verse 3, it starts out and almost sounds like Jesus is juking them a little bit with a, a story that's not really related, but he has a point, actually three points. Verse 3, he said to them, you know, haven't you guys read, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Now, he's referring back to this story in the history of Israel in which King David, who wasn't the king yet at the time, uh, but David, you know, the greatest king of Israel, uh, David has just found out that the king at the time, Saul, has this plan to assassinate him, so he runs. Him and a couple of his followers, they just book it out of Jerusalem. They start heading south. They get a couple miles in, and they're like, you know what? We're going to need some provisions. And at that time, there was no temple, so the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt with his people, was there a few miles south of Jerusalem. They're passing right on by, and David goes into the tabernacle, finds the high priest, and lies to him. He says, I'm on a secret mission from Saul, and we need food. What do you have? And the the high priest is like, well, all I have are the 12 sacred loaves that sit on the altar. And um, David says, that'll do. And so he takes the 12 sacred loaves that only priests are allowed to eat, and he gives it to David, and David his men eat and take whatever's left with them and keep on going. So Jesus brings up this story not to say like, hey, the law's been broken before. What's the big deal? That's not his point. He's bringing it up to say, you know, guys, in the first place, to these Pharisees, he's like, I'm, I'm not sure the way you're interpreting Sabbath laws have room in it for what David did. Because Scripture doesn't come right out and say what David did was wrong. More pictures it is like, here's how God provided for David. So Jesus is referring to this story saying, I I don't think your way of understanding the rules really, like if we applied what you said, then you're saying David did the wrong thing. Are you guys okay with saying that? Do you want to go there? I mean, that's, that's the first layer. Of course, the second layer of bringing up this story is saying, you know, when it comes to how we piece these passages together to understand how we're supposed to live, Jesus is saying, I might be a little better at it than you guys are. Have you considered this? What about this story? And of course, at the, the highest level, the, the sort of third layer of the argument he's making is, you know, David had kind of a special rank as the anointed king to come. He was given certain liberties when it came to the the ceremonial observances, right? He was let off the hook about some of these things because he was David. And Jesus is implying, who do you think I am? Like, if David got these special circumstances or special liberties... You know, shouldn't I too? Of course, that argument only works if Jesus is as special as David or more, which is where he goes with the rest of the confrontation. So after dropping the David story, he goes here in verse 5 to a different kind of tack on this argument. Verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? Man, they break it and they break it bad and yet they're guiltless. Now, what he's referring to here, of course, is that when a priest is leading the services on a Sabbath day, when he's changing the bread or offering a sacrifice or leading the service, offering the prayers, I mean, he's doing work. 
right? That's, that's work. That would fall into the categories of things you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. So priests, every week, profane the Sabbath in the temple, no less, and yet they're guiltless. So how does this work? Well, it's very simple. The law that set up the Sabbath regulations also said that the priests in service of the temple supersede the Sabbath regulations, right? The temple is greater than the Sabbath. If you're serving in the temple, you can break the Sabbath rules because that right is given to you in your work. It's what you're called to do. And so Jesus goes on to say like, hey, look, okay, here's you guys submitting to the Sabbath, which submits to the temple, but guess what? There's something greater than the temple that's here. You saw it there in verse, uh, verse 6 it is. I tell you, hey, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus himself and the kingdom that he is bringing, he says, look, you're here, Sabbath's here, temple's here, but I'm, I'm kind of up here in this whole other level when it comes to the Sabbath. Let's make sure we get these things in order. And now you can understand the Pharisees are getting probably a little angry, right? And this is about a whole lot more than Jesus's followers and him having broken a minor Sabbath law. Now Jesus is claiming himself to be greater even than the temple, the place where God dwells with his people. And saying, Jesus is saying, like, I'm Lord over you, I'm Lord over the Sabbath, I'm Lord over the temple. Like, what's higher than that? Just God. And he goes right on to make it explicit, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, there's some more that happens uh, in there. In verse 7, um, Jesus is, well, he's already implied that the Pharisees don't understand how to apply the Old Testament to their lives on, you know, on the day. He's hinted that he's more important even than David, so any special favor David gets, he should also get. He's outright said he's greater than the dwelling place of God. And then to these guys, he says, and you know, if you really understood... And he quotes an Old Testament verse from Hosea, which is just a slap in the face, because that's what these guys do for a living, is understand this stuff. If you'd really understood, if you had known what this means, and here's the quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. You wouldn't be speaking condemnation. You wouldn't be calling him and his disciples guilty of something for which they are obviously not guilty. Now, Hosea 6, you've probably heard this before, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, or I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. It's one of the more famous verses in the Old Testament. And in Hosea, this prophet, in the book, or in the section of, of what Hosea wrote, it's coming right in this context where uh, Hosea, well, God through Hosea is describing the people of Israel and their love for him. And he says, your love for me is about as solid as the morning fog. It lasts about as long as the dew in the morning. It's not a compliment. Right? And, and it's in this broader description of how the, the people of Israel, from the people to the princes to the kings to the priests themselves, have all essentially profaned themselves, given themselves over to treachery, to lying, to iniquity, to adultery, to idolatry. Like It's, it's a lot that's described there in Hosea 6 and the chapters around it. They've given themselves over to all of this stuff that is 
obviously not what God requires or wants from his people, and yet, here's the kicker, they think they're fine because they're offering all the right sacrifices. They're saying all the right prayers. They're keeping the schedule. They're honoring the Sabbath, you know, by not working. They're, they're giving the burnt offerings. They're doing everything on time and on schedule, and yet they're mired in all of this treachery and iniquity, and God, through Hosea, says, I think you're missing the point. I'm not interested in you keeping the sacrifice schedule as a way to just sort of write off all the rest of your behavior. He says, I want mercy from you. I want steadfast love from you, not your sacrifices. He said, I'd rather you knew me than gave me burnt offerings. I want you to know me, not just give me things so you feel okay about everything else that you're doing. And so in, in one sentence, Jesus saying, you know, if you guys had understood what Hosea was saying when, when he wrote what God said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you, you wouldn't be condemning us right now. He's essentially saying to them, like, your attitude towards the law and towards what it means to follow God, your attitude towards all those regulations, all the rules, all the things you, you keep regularly doing in order to make sure you're doing it right, says your attitude is a lot like theirs was. not a compliment. He's saying to them, you cannot rely on a superficial and hypocritical, in this case, religious observance to absolve you of everything else. Don't think that you're righteous before God because even though you're treacherous and exploitative, you're offering a sacrifice every week. It doesn't work that way. In the order of priorities, mercy or steadfast love ranks higher than sacrifice. So in just a few verses to, to summarize here, the Pharisees bring up this charge of, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds by saying, um, I don't think you guys know how to read your Bible. I don't think you understand who I am. I think you're blind to the fact that I have way more authority than you do in spiritual matters, and you don't understand what the Sabbath is even for. You're so good at seeing the glasses, you can't see through them to what you're supposed to see. Stop focusing on this and look at what it brings into focus. And to top it all off, verse 8, he says, look, in the order here, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's not subject to the Sabbath, subject to their interpretation of its regulations and how all that works out. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who set it up in the, in the first place, the one who knows what it's for and why it exists and, and who it's supposed to serve, and therefore the one who knows exactly what it means to keep it or to break it. He's saying he, more than they, has the, he has the absolute right to interpret what Sabbath means and how to keep it properly. They've gotten to this point where the Sabbath is all about rules. When Jesus is saying, no, this is all about rest. Sabbath means rest. 
come to me and I will give you rest. And they are so restless because they are only focusing on keeping the rules and making sure everyone else does as well. Jesus is saying that as the Lord of the Sabbath, let me tell you what it's actually about. It's about rest. It's about seeing God act in mercy towards his people in the gift of the Sabbath rest. And he's made this claim, verse 8, where he says, hey, I'm not subject to the Sabbath. I am Lord over the Sabbath. And like Matthew does in other places, he immediately gives us a second story that lines right up with it that proves that what Jesus said is, in fact, true. That's what takes us in to verse 9. With verse 9, we're, we're moving into the second Sabbath conflict. All, all three of the, the, the gospel writers who kind of follow the same sort of outline of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all put these two stories back to back, even though Luke makes a point of saying, hey, they actually occurred on different days. But by putting them together, they're illustrating here this fact. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and then he's going to prove it. So in Matthew's telling of the story, Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and then walks away. It's like, mic drop. Why don't you guys chew on that one for a little while while he and his disciples keep going? You can just imagine one of them looking back at him and like still eating. Anyway, maybe that's just what I would do. Uh, So in verse 9, the story continues. On a different week, on a different Sabbath, but the theme fits together. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue, the Pharisees' synagogue, where they are in charge. And, And a man was there with a withered hand, literally dry hand, meaning... Uh, paralyzed, shrunken, shriveled, uh, somehow non-functioning and and uh, non-operative. Actually, in sort of the the Jewish um, way of understanding how God works, a a shriveled hand was often a sign of God's judgment. So healing from a a hand that was non-operative was a sign of God's blessing. Like normally this sort of thing would be a healing of someone's hand would be highly celebrated. But The Pharisees are here, seeing this guy, seeing Jesus coming in, set up this trap, this question for Jesus, and ask him, is it lawful? What do you think, Jesus? Hey, expert in the law, you tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, Matthew makes sure to note so that we know they're trying to trap him. They are not curious. They're not looking for an actual answer. They're asking him a question about how he interprets the law for the sole purpose of finding a way to accuse him of Sabbath breaking so they can throw him out of the synagogue, put the ban on him so he's not allowed to be part of it anymore. And the egregious thing is they're willing to use anyone who's nearby to make it happen. This unfortunate third party, the guy with a paralyzed hand who has suffered from this for who knows how long is just a pawn, in a plot to try to trap Jesus. So, Jesus, what do you think? Does the law allow healing on a Sabbath? Now, as you would expect, there are strict rules about what you can and cannot do in terms of the healing arts on a Sabbath day. It gets a little particular and a little gross. One rabbi writes, you can drain pus from a wound, but you can't treat the wound. 
So you can just sort of relieve a little bit of pressure. Actually, there was another group that went even further and said, uh, you can't even pray for someone's healing on the Sabbath because that's work. Do it the next day. So there's very strict ideas about what you can do in terms of healing. Those laws don't cover miraculous healings, but that's kind of beside the point. Um, There's strict laws about what you can do, and they're trying to pin Jesus down into a camp because there's debate, and at Jesus' time, this is being argued over. Can you do this or can you not do this? What can you do? What can't you do? They're trying to get him to put himself in a camp or in a group so they can accuse him of being soft on Sabbath. We're going to get him. Now, of course, Jesus responds brilliantly, as you would expect, uh, in verse 11. But differently, he responds differently than he did in the previous story. In the previous story, he appeals to Scripture, and he appeals to his own authority. He says, look, David did this, the priests do that, and besides, I'm Lord of this whole Sabbath thing anyway. In this story, he doesn't do any of that. He simply points out the inconsistency of their own position. So verse 11, he, he, he says to them, yeah, that's a good question. Now, you guys tell me, which one of you, if you had a, a sheep, say, and it fell in a pit, uh, which one of you wouldn't lift, which, by the way, lifting things is not allowed on the Sabbath, which one of you wouldn't lift the sheep out of the pit in order to, to rescue it, to, to do good for that sheep? Now, I don't know how often sheep fell in pits, uh, especially on the Sabbath, but there were a a lot of rabbis that wrote about this, this particular case. It's like how when we were kids, we all thought we were going to die of falling in quicksand. I've never seen any, but everybody's writing about it and warning you what to do. So whether this happens or not, Jesus is using this test case scenario and says, hey, you guys, you know, You don't actually seem to have a problem about work on the Sabbath when it comes to your own property. Of course, they would say, well, a a sheep in a a pit, I mean, it's subject to, you can't leave it overnight, it might get eaten or whatever. Actually, there was a group that said, no, you can't lift the, the sheep out of the pit, but you can't throw it food. Uh, Or maybe a few sticks and it can walk on out on its own, but you can't help it. So again, it it was very debated. A lot of people with a lot of ideas about what you could and couldn't do. But these guys, at least the Pharisees, they were not in that ultra, ultra strict camp. Like, yes, of course, you you would lift it out. But because you couldn't couldn't just leave it to be eaten overnight. You got to, you know, there's mortal danger here. And, And Jesus takes kind of the inconsistency of their answer and goes on to say, well, how much more value is a man than a sheep? Like you tell me on, on the, the scale of relative value, sheep, person. One of these things is higher than the other. What do you think? Of course, they would respond, look, of course people are more valuable than sheep. But this guy's been living with this for who knows how long. He's not in imminent danger. He's not dying today unless you dress his wound. You can heal him yesterday. You can heal him tomorrow, but you don't need to heal him today. He's going to be fine. The Sabbath is set aside for rest, not for healing, not for working, not for laboring, not for doing your job, but for, for focusing on 
who God is and, and what, he's, what he's given to us. And, and what, what makes this whole thing ironic is that th- these guys are telling Jesus that the Sabbath is, for, is to be set aside for worship directed towards God, rest in him, enjoyment of his good works. They're telling him this while actively plotting evil against him. The Sabbath is for good, except us right now. It's like when your kids uh, complain that their brother or their sister had their eyes open when they were praying. Right? They're actively planning and plotting evil. And in contrast, Jesus is going to do a miraculous healing that is going to restore a person to complete health. Which one of these better honors the spirit of the Sabbath? Who's really keeping the Sabbath as the Sabbath was intended to be kept? To prove his point, Jesus says to the guy with the withered hand, hey, let us all see your hand. Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other, brand new. Good as new. Because the Sabbath isn't about superficial holiness. It's not about maintaining a checklist of good things we do to make God happy. The Sabbath isn't about superficial holiness. It's about a deep wholeness. It's about living into the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing, living and doing what we would be doing if the kingdom were here, showing mercy, doing good. The Pharisees are so focused on holiness, they're not very whole. They're so focused on keeping, the ex- keeping it well that they're not keeping it at all. So what's their response? Jesus has basically shut them down. They have no response, at least nothing verbal. So they just leave. It says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the turning point of the book of Matthew. Like, The table is now set. We know who the players are and what is about to happen. There's no turning back from this point. They go out and conspire to kill him, not because he shamed them in these two conflicts, though certainly he did, and not because he broke their Sabbath regulations, though certainly he did. Sabbath keeping never shows up when they accuse Jesus uh, at his crucifixion. Because that was never the issue. The issue is that Jesus says, hey, when you think about the Sabbath, here's you, here's the Sabbath, here's me. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. That's the problem. That Jesus is not claiming to be a, a teacher who's decently good at figuring out how to keep the Sabbath. He's claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who, despite their opposition, the only one who has the right to tell them, actually, you guys are missing the point. You guys are the ones missing the point. You've gotten so focused on the glasses, you, you can't even see what the glasses are bringing into focus. You are so obsessed with the smudges on your face that you've forgotten there's a world beyond it. 
that this practice is designed to show you something, not simply to be done for the sake of being done. They have gotten so committed to the, the duty of Sabbath and everything else that they've forgotten the delight that it's supposed that's designed to draw them into. Because the Sabbath, as a practice, it's supposed to be a model of the kingdom to come. It's supposed to be a picture of the delightful rest in the presence of God with one another that God says is coming in the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, we will be at rest. You get to taste that now ahead of time. And what Jesus says is a, an easy yoke and a way to find rest, the Pharisees have turned into a burdensome regulation, full of stipulations. One rabbi, at least honestly and somewhat wryly puts it, you know, the Sabbath is a mountain of rules hanging by a hair of Scripture. But don't be too hard on them because we do the same thing. We do the same thing. They may have gotten so fixated on the glasses that they fail to see through them to the rest and the wholeness that Sabbath promises, but we do the same thing. We do focus on you know, all the discipleship practices that we do, whether it's prayer or scripture study or, or worship or service or evangelism, as if the activity itself is what God cares about. When Scripture is clear that what God wants out of us is our hearts, wholly oriented towards Him. He wants our hearts and all of the activity that naturally flows out of that. I was talking with one person in between services after preaching this first hour, and she told me, you know, I, I, after hearing this, I realize I feel good when I do my morning devotions, but not because I've encountered Jesus, because I've checked them off my list. I've done my morning devotions. And, and I've experienced the same thing. You know, I'm not trying to make a point here about whether we should or shouldn't practice Sabbath or what you can and can't do on a Sunday. Like Jesus does here, we have to raise the discussion to a whole nother register. The question is, well, the point is, whether it's Sabbath or any of the discipleship disciplines that we do, are we doing them for the sake of doing them right, or are we doing them because we see through them and they focus us on the one on whom we're intended to focus? Are they drawing us closer to Jesus or simply giving us the good feeling of checking something off a list that someone we love will be proud of us for doing? It's a tough question. I mean, for me, as much as for anyone else here, so... By simple way of application, we'll just ask an easy question. Why are we doing all the things we're doing? Individually, corporately, why are we doing all of the individual, regular, habitual disciplines that we do that are intended to bring us closer to Jesus? You know, we, we pray regularly, we worship regularly, we give, we talk about Jesus, we fast, we celebrate, we abstain, we contemplate, we seek solitude and silence, we sing and rejoice, we work and we rest, but why? 
Are we like the Pharisees, prone to, to make a list to feel good about our relationship with God because we've checked off a number of things, never mind that the rest of us is pursuing what we, you know, our own desires and our own whatevers the rest of the time. As long as I get in my morning prayer or my morning scripture reading, then I'm, I'm good to go. Is that why we're doing it? Or do we do these things because they bring Jesus into focus for us? I've talked about this in other contexts, but for a number of years, I've had a, a habit of first thing in the morning, uh, reading scripture and praying. The, the kind of threshold for it was before I look at my phone, read scripture and pray. And after a couple years of it, uh, and it's been great, I've loved the habit for a long time, but I, I realized about six months ago that you know, after doing this for a couple years, I'm really good at reading scripture and praying before looking at my phone. I'm not very good at encountering Jesus in scripture and prayer anymore. I'll get up in the morning and be like, well, okay, I'll leave that there, but I can you know, get on my computer and check this or do that or watch TV for a little bit and quick before I leave, read a verse and pray for a moment. Or someone will text me and I'll see who it is and I'll be like, okay, hold on. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, now I can, right? Hey, I'm doing, the, I'm doing the, the thing, right? I'm doing the thing. And yet, it obviously became about doing the thing and not encountering Jesus in the thing. So I, I took January off, uh, stopped the habit, just quit, cold turkey. It was really easy, surprisingly so. And I plan to go back to it, but it's like, you know what? For a time, I got to remind myself here that the point isn't to check a box that says, I did this before I did that. The point is to encounter Jesus, to not be so focused on the glasses that I forget what the glasses bring into focus. The point of all of this is to come to know God through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, If you're like me and some of these practices aren't bringing you to Jesus, not bringing you to rest and wholeness, then either it's time to take a break or, like me, you've got a little bit of a Pharisee inside of you. If I just check the box and I'm good to go, it's not about the practices. It's about what the, who the practices point to. Jesus is Lord of the practices, Lord of the Sabbath. So wherever you are on this, I mean, you may be in a point where it's like, no, all these things that I'm doing are, are really, like, I am encountering Jesus in this. That's awesome. You may be in a place where you're like, you know what, I am just doing it to get it done. I'm not even trying to encounter Jesus. It's time to make a change. Or you may be in that middle ground that is probably the most difficult of all, where you're like, I'm doing these things because I want to encounter Jesus, and I don't feel like it's happening. Well, Persist. Because like Sabbath that you practice for a lifetime, like prayer and scripture study and any of the things we get together to do regularly, you learn over a lifetime how they continue to form you into a child of God, into the people of God. I mean, that's the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed to form people into the people of God, not to form them into people who can keep the Sabbath, uh, though that's a great byproduct of it. It's not the point. Sabbath, like prayer and worship and scripture reading, is never the end. It's the means to the end. In the same way that wearing glasses is not about having glasses. It's about being able to see. That's 
the point. So how clean are your glasses? Yeah, I know, right? Kind of smudged. Father, we pray that um, as you draw us to you, as you, you draw us to focus on you, that imperfect though we are and imperfect though all of our practices may be, that you would clear away enough of the stuff that through them we see you and we see your glory and the glory of your goodness to us in the face of Jesus, that we too may be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Father, forgive us for the things that we have have done, those damnable good works that we have done to try to earn your favor and instead help us to rest in the favor you have given us through Jesus. We pray in his name.